0: Hello, and welcome to Irenicast. This week, we have a great interview with author
1: Mark Van Steenwick, conducted by our very own Alan. Before I take you to the interview, I just want to remind you that if you have anything to add to this particular episode, you can do that at Irenicast.com 62. And for any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for the show in general, you can contact us at Irenicast.com slash feedback. And if you like what you hear, you can always find ways to support us at Irenicast.com slash support. So without any further ado, here's Alan's interview with author Mark Van Steenwick.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Alan here. We do not have Jeff and Mona again this week. We have actually Mark Van Steenwick with us. He is the co-founder of The Mennonite Worker, an intentional community in Minneapolis rooted in the way of Jesus. He is the co-producer of the Iconocast and has interviewed people like Cornell West, James Cohn, Bill Ayers, Noam Chomsky, Starhawk, Waza Yatowin, and many, many more people. For the past decade, Mark has traveled around the continent as a speaker, teacher, and networker of radical Christian communities. He's currently organizing the Carnival de Resistance, which is coming to Minneapolis in the fall. Mark is the author of That Holy Anarchist, The Unkingdom of God, and now a children's book titled A Wolf at the Gate. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> of course. Mark, there's there's a lot that I would like to talk with you about. Your work is interesting and provocative, especially to quasi-evangelicals like me who started reading anti-Empire propaganda in their early 20s. Yeah, But but, uh, that last book, A Wolf at the Gate, is the main topic of discussion this morning. And uh, Mm -hmm. in, in that book, you touch on a mountain of topics that have to do with Empire and justice and peacemaking and all sorts of things. So there's quite a bit that we can talk about. Can you tell us a little bit about how the inspiration of St. Francis and the wolf came into play for your book?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I like St. Francis. He's a cool guy. I want to be like him when I grow up (laughs) and I have a, and I have a son, right? So I have a son who's now eight, but I think when I started this, he was maybe six and like a lot of six year olds, um, especially in our culture, six year old boys, he was drawn towards like stories about knights and pirates and other kinds of warrior sorts of things. If there wasn't some sort of death or destruction in a book, it was boring. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm feeling inadequate as a, as a pacifist parent. (laughs) What, what's going on? How am I failing? (laughs) And so then I started looking for, you know, you go look up nonviolent books, like on Mennonite websites or whatever, Try to find them and you go to the library and check out these nice books about the history of Martin Luther King Jr. Stuff that all kind of feels pretty academic to a little six-year-old. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, dang, I need to tell a story that's like got some teeth to it but has a, a story of nonviolence. And so I started uh, telling the story, finding storybook versions of um, Francis and the Wolf of Gubbio. And journalists like them okay, but I'm like, you know, I think I can do better. I think I, I need to up the story instead of it being all about St. Francis and his Jesus magics. I need to have it be about this, this fierce wolf.
0: Mm-hmm. Cause
1: that's the interesting, most uh, toothy part of this story. So right. I, we wrote the tale from the perspective of the wolf and, and then kept the story going. I, the first half is vaguely a retelling of the story of Francis and the wolf. And the second half is like, here's what I wish would happen. <laughs> so only half of it is based on the legend, the other half is just my imagination. Um, and then just because I thought it'd be interesting, I made the the wolf red, which hmm. uh, is symbolic of all kinds of things. So that's the, that's the, that's the origin story. So
0: wolf. the, yeah. the first half is St. Francis in like coming between and being an interloper for the village and this wolf that keeps killing people. And he makes peace with the wolf and somehow restores it to relationship with the village. But in your story, uh it tells it from the wolf's perspective and yeah. the wolf is upset because the reason the the wolves are attacking is because they don't have as much food as they used to because of the humans. So, it's that yeah. that inequality of resources that kind of, you know, sets the the stage for the first part of your book. That yeah, which which brings me to a question. Um yeah. inequality of resources seems to be something that you're pretty passionate about, right? Sure. And uh, does your work in the world outside of this book, is that the basis for like the village that's been set up where there's inequality of resources for the people, but also for the animal kingdom as more and more come under the human being's control? Is it the stuff you see around you in your your life and your work that has inspired that?
1: Sure. I mean, like, so in the book, you know, it's, yeah, there's rich and there's poor and the rich, they're just – for the sake of being a little balanced, not all the not all the rich people in the book are bastards, but <laughs> most of them are. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's poor beggar folk. And in the book, it's not Saint Francis. Uh, I don't call him that because that's an anesthetized version of how he would have been seen in his mm-hmm. day. In the book, I call him the Beggar King um, because that's what Francis was. He was a beggar. Um, and to me, that reflects. Like, I mean, our world is has is insane. I mean, our world is is no longer functioning in a healthy way um, because of exploitation. So exploitation of resources was the justification uh, for genocide. It was a justification for the slave trade. It was a justification for current exploitation um, through war. Um, It's all this uh, social inequality. And then we justify our social inequalities with all these sorts of stories that we tell about the America Protestant work ethic or hard work will get you ahead or people are poor because they' lazy all these sorts of things like it's underneath it all and so I think in my my real life um, we, you know we live in an intentional community we do a lot of activism we live simply um, not because it's pretty like st Fran- a statue of st Francis in a garden um, but because the world is unjust uh, and I you know that was the part I didn't really like about the original St. Francis and the Wolf story is like the wolf is mean and then Francis kind of walks up and makes the sign of the cross and the, the wolf is nice. I'm like, no, uh, wolves only attack humans because of scarcity of resources and usually because of our, because of what we're doing. So the wolf is the hero.
0: Yeah. And, and that touches on something you've talked about before. You uh, you did some stuff with the work of the people, did some yeah. recordings and put that up. And in one of them, you talk about empire, and you talk about how this uh, phenomenon happens in human brains that um, when people in our society have become useless or homeless, and, and when they look at them, there's activity in their brain that would normally happen doesn't happen when, they see, when we see people who are on the margins or whatever. Um, I think the example you used was there was – a study done with like some sort of ball and you put eyes on it. And the medial prefrontal cortex lights up when we see people's faces, but not the ball. And then they did a Mm -hmm. study of certain people and that cortex does not light up when people see quote unquote homeless or, you know, vagrant populations. And so um, in this story, you are literally humanizing the animals telling it from their perspective, from the wolf's perspective, whereas the original the wolf was all evil. I think that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. It was just a foil and you know, I have to be careful when I'm anthropomorphizing, uh, uh, animals. Like I feel like you have to do that to a point. I try to keep them at purely animals. They're not like walking around with like Donald duck shirts on or anything. Yeah. Uh, but I needed them to have a voice, um, because I mean, we, the human beings were not the center of things. Like we act like we are. um, I, I think theology, if we're trying to listen to Jesus at all, um, the invitation isn't to be the center of things, but to be co-laborers with God in recreation. Mm. And you know, uh, the sad reality is is that we or our, or our ancestors are part of the problem of why we need to do a recreation, and we screwed things up. Mm-hmm. And that's <laughs> that's hard for people to hear. Uh, so, <clears throat> in the in the book, I try to. to I, I try to tackle what does it look like uh, for the wolf to like back away from violence, but then in, in some ways become like the beggar King herself, um, mm-hmm. kind of a prophetic figure calling people towards some sort of, uh, you know, you could use the word repentance or restored relationship with the earth. Um, and so that's kind of what I set out to do with the book. There's, there's a lot theologically going on underneath the surface, but the nice thing is that, like little kids, it's, it's just, Still a good story, at least I think it is.
0: I think it's a good story for us too, <laughs> not just children, yeah. but for some of us who have, you know, grown up with certain ideas of what the world looks like. Because what I hear a lot is that this is just the way things are, right? You God, talked about yes. inequality, you talked about stuff or violence. Violence is just the way things are, but you don't believe that.
1: Um, no, I, you know, some people will say that this is the way things are. And we need to make the world different, but um, I think that's true. But there is also this isn't just the way things are. There are all kinds of counter ways of living that we don't even notice and um, that will make us healthier. Like we, we can still have a chance. We haven't destroyed all the lilies (laughs) and the, and the ravens. We can still consider them. Um, They're still here to teach us. Hmm. And that's a whole field of psychology called eco psychology that assumes that since human beings evolved as integrated parts of ecosystems, that we are at our most mentally healthy when we're in those sorts of relationships. Um, But I mean, the last, especially, you know, few thousand years of human development, uh, we've alienated ourselves from the rest of creation. Um, And so there's, but there's still a chance for us to restore a right relationship. It's not, not just violence against one another that should give us pause. It's we're doing deep violence, to the rest of creation. And that rebounds back onto us, not only in lack of resources and increased cost of gasoline and things, but it actually makes us less healthy. Yeah.
0: So fish, you know, the fish disappearing, more than half the fish in the world supposedly have disappeared from the oceans. It's not just about what we can put on our plate. It's it's about our relationship to all the environment and how that affects us. Uh, I think that shows up quite often in the book how the environment affects the individuals and how the individuals can't totally take themselves out of the situation like the wolf uh the wolf comes in between this outlaw community of people and the village they start fighting but the wolf sees both perspectives and tries to get in between and cause some sort of peace um to to make a difference even though the wolf can't take itself out of out of her uh situation i think um the the outlaw community itself was interesting to me at the end of the book, uh, toward the end, you said that the outlaw community, uh, was a place where people were welcomed. Um, all were welcomed as honored guests whether they were beggars or outlaws or somebody else. And when they remembered their story and their history, they didn't do it by building a chapel, but by creating this big feast. So for you, the picture of this outlaw community outside of the way things are in the village is this feast where people can come join regardless of who they are. Um, that, that to me looks like um, this picture of the ministry that you do in your intentional community, which you've done for what, like 10, 10 years, 13 years now?
1: Since yeah, like 12, 12 years or so. 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to varying degrees of success
0: <laughs> and capability. But yeah, I mean, that You mean it's not picture. all success all the time <clears throat> with, with other human beings? Yeah, maybe like 6%. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's percent. pretty
1: good. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm pretty proud of that. Six percent. Now, I mean, the, that end picture is kind of eucharistic, but uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, when we in our churches break bread, um, we have always all different kinds of ways of theologizing this, and um, I personally have the view that of an open table of communion where all are welcome. But I mean, even but there are things present there. Um, Besides the human community Like if you're drinking wine it's There's labor that goes into it There's pressed grapes The bread is grain So there's actually The soil is present So to me it's like If we cast our theological imagination broader um, It's a glimpse into a world Where we're not only reconciling To each other and God But to the rest of creation And uh, that's kind of the image of the outlaws And it was kind of controversial Like the only pushback I've really gotten on the book Two There's two pushbacks I've gotten um, one is that the – I don't want to give away too much, but the outlaws kind of – they get away with a crime they committed earlier, um, which it's interesting how that – when every time someone says that, I'm like, well, the, the people that are exploiting the poor, the rich people and the council members in the book, they get away with stuff too. Like why aren't you upset about that? <laughs> uh, that's the first little ha-ha that I try to pull on people. Uh, The other was, uh, and I was really happy about this, that one of of the first endorsers we got was Bill Ayers, who, for those who don't know, uh, there was a group in the early 70s called the Weather Underground that, um, like, they uh, helped Timothy Leary escape from jail, and they bombed some things, and they they robbed some armored cars with some folks from the Black Panther, and Bill Ayers was the founder of that, and him and... uh, uh, Forgetting his uh, spouse's name, who's also, which is horrible. She was the other co founder. Uh, I wish I could remember her name. Uh, But they spent time, uh, they were arrested. The FBI was going to put them away for a long time, but because of faulty information gathering, they were, they got, uh, they didn't even get in like any time in jail. And now Bill Ayers is uh, an educational scholar for child education. So I thought, this is a guy that I think would understand all the intricacies of this book, and so he's going to endorse it. And I've got some pushback on that because it's like <clears throat> he's a violent man. Now, it's interesting, and I'll, my response to that is like, what if i gotten Barack Obama's endorsement? Mm-mm. I'd only get excitement. Uh, but he's a violent man. Sure. And especially if you count all the – yeah, count it all up. It's just that we have this uh, legitimacy covers over our, the ways that we see violence. hmm and so I really tried, you know, I don't know how I succeeded at that. That's a big idea to try to convey in a children's book. But I try to get at some of that, looking at the complexity of violence. And I don't think at all I try to push away the violence of the outlaws. But in the end, they learn a different way. Mm-hmm. And it's a way that they keep sustained um, through feasting in the forest, even with the animals. Uh, every learning year, from, at the yeah, Learning
0: from the animals and being yeah. connected to their environment. Yeah, that's interesting so people were upset about the injustice that people didn't get what was coming to them um, whereas you're trying to point to the injustice that's legitimized in 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 the society of the village itself
1: yeah because we all do this thing like uh, oh that's just the way it is it's like right now at the election uh, people are upset at Bernie Sanders supporters for being too idealistic and when you criticize Hillary Clinton for speaking at you know in Wall Street firms, mm-hmm. the, the, it's a shrug. Well, that's just the way it is. I'm like, well, that's our problem. Like <laughs> we accept that. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And there's other countries where that would get you in jail because it's called corruption. Uh, but we have a legitimized uh, – we've legitimized it. So we allow things like legitimacy and laws to determine our moral view, mm. um, which is just hor- as As people of faith, no matter what your faith is, but specifically as Christians – to allow that to shape our moral view is gross. I mean, we have, <laughs> we have this whole, you know, Jesus-y stuff in a book that we can look at uh, to shape our moral view that we don't. Uh, we dismiss it because it doesn't fit with the way things are.
0: Yeah, because Jesus' message was illegitimate,
1: right? Uh, it's illegitimate now. The, uh, the Jesus in the church is legitimate, mm-hmm. but the message of Jesus is illegitimate. And so we treat it almost allegorically. Hmm. Uh, we don't give it serious weight because we think it's naive no one ever wants to say Jesus is a naive fool but that's how we treat him we treat Jesus like a naive fool we treat St. Francis like a naive fool this wolf is a naive fool Um, my goal in life is to be a naive fool (laughs) I think we need to get at being naive fools because uh, what what we're doing now currently clearly does not work I mean our world is dying People are dying. Uh, we have this myth of progress and these legit, we do these things that legitimize the way things are to think that it makes it okay, but it doesn't.
0: Mm. You said that uh, in, in one of the videos that I've seen you speaking, you said, if we share and we share wisely, I think we can make it work. Um, do you think that that there's a reality out there for humankind, that this is the road we're always going to be on, or if more people adopt similar mindsets, that things can actually change. I uh, the, the reason I asked that was, I, I read your book and I was drinking coffee on my porch, <laughs> thinking mm-hmm. about life deeply, and realizing like the the system itself of our world, or our society, or economics, or our families, or whatever, is so much bigger than us. It's mm-hmm. hard to think. I think the message we get sometimes is that change on the individual level will always be individual and will not affect the rest of the system. But in thinking through the story that you've written, that's not true to see the redemption of one person from violence or the, you know, that the wolf has the scarcity of resources. That's making it attack people. The wolf coming out of that eventually affects an entire community. And, uh, do, do you think that there is hope for communities and humanity in general? If there are people that are more willing
1: to be a little bit foolish And make some change. Yeah, I mean, I think there's at least a little hope. I mean, I don't – I try – if I think about trying to change the whole thing, uh, I become susceptible to despair. I feel like it's just – that's too large of a scope. And Jesus, you know, Jesus' way of engaging things was to engage the person right in front of him. Um, I think he had some analysis of systems. Um, maybe he wouldn 't have spoken of it as such. He definitely affected Jerusalem and caused a Ruckus, but he did it by um really f- not focusing on like tr- he wasn't he didn 't state that he was trying to change the Roman Empire in fact, mm-hmm. at the end, uh, according to our story, um, when he uh, commissioned his disciples, he kind of left that task with them um he kept he kept his city and the people around him in view and I think that's kind of how we need to do I think we have to be mindful of the whole but um, just figure out how to do the most loving things within our neighborhood in our city Mm -hmm. and the people around us and just trust that 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 that's enough like that that should give us hope and you know to be honest the times when I don't feel like there's much hope uh, oftentimes the thing that gets me through is a sense of defiance like saying them they don't get to decide how this thing goes Um, and then I just kind of defiantly live into it anyways because what's the alternative Uh. I mean that's the thing it's like wouldn't it be better to like just waste your life gloriously on something interesting Mm. (laughs) than just be a cog in a dull mediocrity machine like to me that's still more worth it to spend your life on something beautiful even if it doesn't affect anything now I do think change happens but I don't think I have control over that, so I'm just going to whether I have mm-hmm. defiance or hope in my heart. Either each day I'm going to try to live in a way that extends the good things as best as I
0: can. Do Do you ever feel like you have to be effective?
1: Yeah, I think that's what I start feeling anxiety. That's when I start <laughs> feeling a lot of anxiety, uh, and I don't think that's. I mean, it's really interesting how Jesus frames, the Sermon on the Mount is very idealistic, but there's all that stuff about not worrying about the future in there. Mm -hmm. And I think the worry about being effective, um, I don't think that's something Jesus worried about.
0: Because that that starts to define other people too, right? Like, are they effective? Are they worth my time? Are they worth our time? Yes.
1: Effectiveness leads to all kinds of judgments about ourselves. And about other people and whether or not they fit. Like I remember in seminary, I was taught this: that I, if I'm a level ten leader, which they designated that somehow I was, at <laughs> the scholarship to seminary, that I should only spend my time in investing in level nine people, mm-hmm. or maybe eight that in those level eight or nine people can, you know, trickle down kind of theory.
0: Is this a metaphor or is this real terminology? That's what they used. Yeah. Really? So how can we, why don't you put level 10 on your, uh, your online presence
1: in your bio? I think maybe I should. (laughs) I'm a level 10 leader. Should be on the bottom of my business card. There you go. (laughs) But but I mean, Jesus didn't, there was a whole bunch of level fours and threes in his squad, (laughs) squad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what happens when we when we tr- our goal becomes being effective mm. um, as a as some sort of virtuous goal uh, it's effective at what like maybe is a better question like effectiveness by itself is worthless just like being obedient by itself is a worthless concept mm. um, but that's something else our society values
0: I feel like I could stop and like think on that for a while <laughs> obedience itself is not some sort of
1: moral It's not a virtue. virtue no Interesting. No, there's a there's a great little book. It's out of print, uh, called "Beyond Mere Obedience" by Dorothy Sola. She was a German theologian, and in it, she says, "Like we're not supposed to, uh, we're not supposed to just be obedient. Like once we made obedience a virtue, it allowed all sorts of injustice to happen. Um, Jesus wasn't just merely obedient. You have to think of this, the object of your obedience, like who you're being obedient to and why." and so she kind of reframed the conversation but we treat some of these things like virtues obedience effectiveness skill like but without some sort of way of orienting those things you can just be like donald trump is effective <laughs> he's effective as hell nobody can argue with that <laughs> no <That's> he's true. <laughs> superbly effective he's amazingly effective that's his problem yeah i wish he were way more ineffective hmm
0: so so that's the great sin of the Empire or the village is not being effective for our purposes and our aims, right? Not being not contributing to the whole that that we have determined is good
1: as no, people. We, yeah, we don't think about the big picture and we start you know, like I've talked to so many people where I'll I'll sit down with them and they're like saying it's like, I'm naive or foolish or something. And I'll say, well, wouldn't it be good if people started caring for one another? And when you, if there's homeless people that churches around the city, like had rooms and houses for them instead of like these uh, for-profit depersonalized shelters, wouldn't that be good? It's like, well, that would be good in an ideal world, but we don't live in that world. I'm like, already you've already conceded. I mean, that's, why not? Why don't we live in that world? Because of bastards like you. That's, that's <laughs> why we don't live in that world. People who have surrendered their imagination, right? Entirely surrender their imagination and their their abilities. Mm. You know, and like, I mean, the whole system is built this way. It's set up this way. Like, uh, I've seen this church boards, like we'll have on their board, uh, some guy who's probably not a very good human being, but who's very effective and successful, then you'll have a very moral person who's maybe homeless that you never have on a church board. I'm like, why is that? It's because effectiveness trumps morality. Like, that's just, I mean, if you just look at it mechanistically, that's kind of how our society operates. We don't, as Christians, we say we value certain things, but then we need to look at our actions. Like, what if I looked at our society and say, we value putting in forty hours a week and making a good income above loving the homeless. Mm. Like we, you know, I yeah. don't even have to make moral judgments. I just have to say, well, if I had to guess how the system is designed to work, that's how I would assume it works.
0: You don't see anybody running on the homeless ticket, right? Or the <laughs> gonna um, benefit all people ticket. That's interesting. No. Um, you said. On uh you did a recent post to Peter N's uh website where you answered some questions and mm-hmm. one of the questions you answered was about your favorite part of the book and you talked about three vignettes that, that teach something and it was the third vignette that you said was most interesting to you. Yeah. And and you talk about um the wolf speaking to the beggar king as a as a peer, not as just a student, but someone who is now a peer, and he teaches her, you know, about the selfishness of humanity, saying the villagers are selfish, that's why they're doing what they're doing. You gotta love them anyway. And then she refuses to accept it. Later in the book, she pushes yeah. back. Uh, Could I ask you to elaborate a little bit more? Like, why why is that favorite favorite part f- to have the wolf push back?
1: I mean, because it's in that moment, like, so the beggar king in some ways is this idealized form of a Christian to me, like it's a Mm St. Francis figure who loves everyone, um, but doesn't engage strategically to to confront injustice. It's kind of like, in my mind, it's like the sort of Christian who thinks that our goal is to be charitable, Mm. to serve. Um, And to me, serving isn't the highest goal, like... Sharing with the like in the in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the goal isn't to care for the poor. The goal is jubilee, which is about a redistribution, mm-hmm. uh, kind of an economic reimagining. And so, in that moment, like the you know, it's not like Francis is justifying or uh, the beggar king isn't justifying the inequalities in the village, uh, but he's just saying that's just way how it is. That's mm-hmm. the way that why they do that. And the wolf refuses to accept that that's the way it has to stay. So that's when the wolf starts employing different strategies to try to figure out how to help. Yeah. Uh, uh, since she has some cachet as like this new celebrity. Everyone loves the new red <laughs> wolf. Uh, when she gets more, she gets, ends up getting more stuff given to her by the wealthy to eat than many of the beggars do. Because they see her, they don't see the beggars. And so she shares. Um, and then it goes on from there to her confrontation with the outlaws and her understanding the injustice of that situation. So there's this. There's a bit of an activist, yeah. In the Red Wolf, there's Francis. Saint Francis wasn't much of an activist when it comes to addressing the causes of injustice. Uh, Not that that makes him a bad guy, but there's there's a better way, and I think the Red Wolf shows that better way. She does the work of the Beggar King, but then takes it the next step Mm. of trying to, in some ways, organize. (laughs) She's an organizer.
0: Which is what you're doing right now, right? <laughs> I, I talked about the uh, Carnival Day Resistance. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know yeah. if that's... Um, I, yeah. So is that like a, a group of people who are anarchist Mennonites like you are? Or is it kind of a
1: wider thing that's coming it's, together? It's wider. I mean, a lot of those folks are coming from some of that anarchist or Mennonite sort of background. Um, and I'm just the local organizer for that. Like. Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm part of the organizing team. Uh, so in the fall... In the second half of September, uh, there'll be actually 30 crew members coming to set up a big top. And then uh, Jay Beck and Tevin East, uh, they're kind of the uh, – Tevin's the director of this, and the two of them kind of give vision to this whole thing. And he's from the Psalters. A lot of people might know that Jay Beck from the Psalters. Um, Tevin is uh, a dancer and a performer. And they just do these kind of liturgical – these wild liturgical ceremonies or uh, ceremonials. Ceremonies that are prophetic And sometimes they involve fire It's just, I don't even know how to describe it It's very intense uh, Old school, uh, carnivalesque performance You know, crazy costumes uh, um, Kind of spoken word, prophetic things um, Around the four elements of earth, wind, uh, fire and water and it's, it's really provocative And then outside the big top there um, is a midway and I'm actually getting to perform uh, a narrative song and da- uh, like a, a spoken word song version of Wolf the Gate there in the midway during the carnival. So that'll be fun. Uh, and you know, then the current, the crew members like camp out and it's like an eco village. Like it's, it's a fossil free, fossil fuel free kind of camping area. And, uh, there's all sorts of uh, local activist groups are going to be there tabling. And so it's all kind of a demonstration Yeah, of sort of the topsy-turvy world of the carnival. But it also kind of looks a little bit like uh, – it, it, it reminds me of the outlaw camp at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of any time you have kind of uh, theatrical anarchist people together scheming wild dreams. That's just the kind of thing that happens. Um, and so that's, we're going to be living into that for September. It's going to be great. That's cool.
0: And it's necessarily wild. Cause if it's going to look different, we're going to call it wild. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Wild well, weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there'll be people on stilts, people wearing like carnivalesque masks. Uh, my favorite costume of the ones they wear, uh, Jay and Tevin do one, uh, one show where he's dressed as a crow and she's a, a dove and they're like having this argument with dance and there's some music and, and stuff, but then the fire, I'm hoping we get to do the fire performance. That's when Jay dresses up with a skull <laughs> <laughs> as a skull on. And he's like, and he's got this crown that's on fire and there's people that are spinning fire around him. And he's like reciting different dire prophecies from the old Testament. Uh, it's, it's intense. It's, it's the most prophetic imaginative space I've ever been in is when these, this carnival happens and it's very provocative and sometimes offensive. Like if you're very, I mean, if you're a a straight-laced evangelical, you'll hate it. (laughs) If if
0: you've heard those texts just in church, right? Whispered
1: quietly into a mic. Yeah. Uh, If you're a slightly rebel hearted evangelical, you might find yourself liberated by it. It just depends.
0: (laughs) We we have most of our listeners. um, Many of them are struggling in this, like, kind of movement away from the evangelicalism that they know into new places like post evangelicalism. I said quasi evangelical before because some of us yeah. don't know exactly what we are. Um but you yourself have gone through some sort of transformation from your past to where you're at. From level ten um super delegate in the Christian church to <laughs> somebody organizing the, the carnival. Um that seems like it's been quite a transformation for you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it sure <laughs> has. <laughs> Yeah, I voted for George W. Bush the first time Very nice Uh, Yeah, so I've gone this the spectrum And it's hard Like, you know Interestingly enough um, You can maybe relate to this, but over the years Like over the last decade or so I've seen a lot of my A lot of uh, other people who were evangelical Either re-entrench As kind of fundamentalists Or solid evangelicals Mm -hmm. who just Talk, you know, the way evangelicals talk All the time (laughs) In a strange, weird pseudo way of talking, um, or I've seen people become more radical, but then just lose a little bit of the Jesusy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had friends who just walk away from faith entirely, um, and I don't really judge any of those because I think it's just sure. hard stuff. Um, but it's strangely lonely to to be move kind of, I guess, further to the left into wild terrain, but still be really. Um, you know, just to sound like an evangelical for just a second, still in love with Jesus. You know? Yeah. Still all about the J, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't like, to, to me, it's like weird to like talk about Jesus. Like he's not in the room like a lot of evangelicals do. So mm-hmm. I don't like talk that way anymore. But to me, everything I do orients to that, what I've learned from him and I, mm-hmm. and the belief that Jesus is present, helping make a new world possible. Like I believe that as much as I ever have, but it's hard to find people who really believe that um, yeah. in radical ways that stay the journey. So that's over the last 10, 15 years, that's been the hardest part about it is mm-hmm. the the loss of camaraderie that happens because of that.
0: Yeah. That's something that we've talked recently about. We talked to uh, a guest, Benjamin L. Corey about that. And that's something that we've talked offline about as well between Jeff Mona and I, um, and and i hear like i hear that more than anything it's it's the it's the lack of having some sort of tribe to fall back into you know yeah. <laughs> there seems like there's this giant crack there where he's kind of falling in and it's it just seems unfortunate to me um yeah. well so hopefully somebody out there listening is going to hear that and they're going to be motivated to create a camp in the wilderness <laughs> that everybody can join and have an outlaw community that um, still holds tightly to jesus but
1: looks very yeah, and differently I mean, and they have a wolf that comes and shows them how to do stuff <laughs> Every once in a while, this beggar king shows up and teaches them how to make clothes yes out yes. of like random <laughs> stuff they find in the woods
0: <laughs> hey i i, I do want to say uh i i don't want to to move on from the topic there is something i want to ask you about uh, after this but i do want to talk about one more thing in the book my favorite part uh probably above all else was i i'm going to give away the ending because our listeners have probably read it by now um there is a chapel built on top of the wolf's uh, graveside. And that's based on uh, true stories, right? There was a chapel that was built dedicated to Francis. And there was there a was the chapel of
1: St. Francis that when they were doing renovations in the town of Gubiel, um, probably like 150 years ago, they found the remains of a skeleton, a wolf mm-hmm. skeleton underneath uh, part of the altar stone. So that led people to think... Maybe this isn't just a legend.
0: Yeah, but maybe there's some real, like you said, teeth to it. But my favorite part of that is uh, when the wolf dies and the chapel's built on top of the wolf's grave, Francis doesn't enter the chapel ever, and the people who knew the wolf really well don't go into the chapel, because to them it's sort of an affront to what the wolf stood for, because they don't let homeless people in, you know? And Francis prays out in front of the chapel, but then goes out into the wilderness to join the outlaws, and... That seems like a pretty striking critique of Christianity in general.
1: <laughs> I, mean, it's like what we do with, I mean, it's what we do with like Dr. King and stuff. So they, yeah. the rich people build this ornate chapel. Um, and so every year on the anniversary of the wolf's death, because the wolf is the celebrity type of character, mm-hmm. the rich folks go there to pray. But the homeless aren't allowed because they don't want it to get dirty. And so, <laughs> uh, and so Francis, you know, or the beggar king comes and prays outside and then goes and joins the outlaws. <clears throat> And I feel like that's the move we always do with radical voices. I mean, so uh, Dr. King has a statue in Washington, Mm. D.C. But really, it's like that's not – that's for the powerful. Yeah. That's not for the powerless. And the rich people, uh, like, you know, they don't want the powerless to be empowered that way. So it's just kind of – it's just my way of recognizing that tendency. But every time, like, this is – Wherever you have Dr. King or Gandhi or further back, you have Francis or, or Jesus. Jesus. You have the big the big temples built to honor them mm-hmm. that don't remember their memory. But there's always this ragtag group of sometimes outlaws that still remember the old stories. And so to me, this is a kind of a vision of two churches or two communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this is me. I'm projecting a lot of my dreams into this book. Sure. How I think society should be. Wonderful.
0: I, you know what I'm going to take away from that, I think, is that enshrining somebody or an idea is just a way of controlling it, of keeping it in bounds, right? Instead but of yeah, they're trying to they're trying to
1: saint Dorothy Day right now, which I am not a. Fan oh wow, of.
0: interesting. Yeah. So you're against Dorothy Day becoming a saint?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think she would have been too. I, I respect my friends of uh, different Catholic worker friends mm-hmm. who are for it, and other people. I understand why. If I were Catholic, maybe I'd be for it. But since, to me, her being recognized by the church doesn't add or take away hmm. from my faith at all because I'm not a Catholic, I don't see the positive in that. Yeah. I mean, Oscar Romero's not a saint, but I lift him up way heavier than, like, hmm. almost every other saint <coughs> that has yeah. been canonized. So it makes no <laughs> difference to me. Uh, so I'd rather have Dorothy be kept alive through the people who remember her and the stories that we tell in Catholic worker and Catholic worker-type communities rather than having a giant statue in some basilica somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um so that's my take. Interesting. Worthy situation, yeah.
0: So, uh so your goal is to someday live the way of Jesus uh so intimately that you are this demonstration of a different way of living which may look foolish to some people. But then when you're gone to have a statue of you in your books that is created and erected for everybody forever, right?
1: And, and then yeah, and then that's my goal. And then hopefully my great great grands daughter, let's just in the spirit of the red wolf, um, the character of a feisty strong woman who does not accept the way things are, uh, my great 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 granddaughter goes and destroys the shit out of that <laughs> statue. That's my dream right there. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Awesome.
0: Hey, thank you so much for, for sharing about your book. Uh, I encourage everybody to go read it. Uh, it's available on Kindle. It's available hardback. Um, it is on Amazon and some other places. You're, you're actually working on more children's books. Is that right?
1: Yeah. That's cool. And um, This book actually was uh, – I, I started this other book before this one. Um, I did the Wolf at the Gate so that I hit my feet wet and children's writing first. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, The Red Wolf will... There will be a cameo, interestingly enough. But this... I'm writing actually a a novel series, probably four books, maybe five, set thousands of years in the future uh, after humanity has been judged and we've had our sapience taken away and given to different animals. And it centers around this post-apocalyptic squirrel (laughs) named named Hackberry... Uh, who holds the fear of the world in his paws? Um, it's the, It's going to be heavily influenced by Nordic mythology, so it's actually I'm calling it my Hackberry Saga.
0: Very cool. Hey, God would never do that to humanity, right? Wouldn't judge us for our actions. In <laughs> well,
1: in this uh, there isn't a Yahweh in this book in the book series. There's actually uh, a pantheon of gods that the animals worship. So.
0: I am excited to to read that. Is there is there any way that we can um <clears throat> support your book or follow you on Twitter or some way that we can uh keep in touch with you for all the listeners who are interested in your stuff?
1: Yes. Um I mean I on Facebook you can search for Mark Van Steenwick. I have my regular account and then my author page. Um, I'll probably say yes to either of those if you friend me. Uh Twitter is Mark Van S. You just look for Mark Van Steenwink. Follow me there. Um I tend to post fairly frequently.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, So yeah, if, if you're listening, go buy the book, follow, uh, support this alternative vision. I think it's something that a lot of us can, um, identify with at least knowing that there has to be a different way, right? Some sort of other alternative. Um, I think, I think that's awesome. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your book and a little bit of yourself with us. It was good to talk. Thanks a lot.